Testament about the temptation of the Lord Jesus Christ. A profound text which always puts more fear and trepidation in the preacher. It's those big and important passages of the Bible, if we can say that's what they are, that call for uh, the most diligent handling. And I believe this text can be used to build your faith today and perhaps bring someone to faith in Christ. Let me read it and then we'll get into our sermon this morning uh, from the ESV, the English Standard Version of God's Holy Word, Luke 4, beginning in verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him, until an opportune time. May the Lord bless the reading, hearing, believing, and obeying of his holy word. Amen. Amen. Instead of calling this sermon the temptation of Jesus, I've given it the name, the whole truth, which you may find it it connects with that popular saying, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. It's often the the prescribed uh, language when swearing in a witness in a court of law. When you want to put someone under the constraint, indeed the fear of God, that they should tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. No prevarications, no half-truths. I have that concept in mind because here in this text, the devil is spewing half-truths truths. He even quotes scripture, most of a verse, not all the verse. What is a half-truth? It's that statement that conveys only part of the reality, especially when used deliberately in order to deceive. That's what a half-truth is, and the devil has got a doctorate in half-truths. Yet we see, don't we, here in the scriptures how Jesus deals with the devil, and Jesus uses truth to defeat him in his temptations, 
But it's not just a a spiritual battle map that we're given here. We also see our Savior, the author and perfecter of our faith, showing us what biblical faith is, how it functions. Jesus here is not only the victor by the truth of the word of God, but he becomes a model for faith in God the Father. And that's what we need. We need help with our temptations, amen. And we need to know how does faith function in this broken world. And Jesus gives us a glimpse of that. As one scholar has said, Jesus models for us what gospel faith looks like, trusting the Lord to provide rather than making decisions based on urgencies of the situation. And here, in each temptation, the devil presents a half-truth. But in each temptation, Jesus sees the deeper principle at work, that the call of faith is the call to look to the Lord's provision and timing. This kind of gospel living brings glory to God and defeats temptation. So let's take a look. Our first heading this morning of the three headings is simply Jesus starts his ministry. The Savior begins. He had entered his public ministry at the end of chapter 3 when he was baptized publicly. He stepped forward. His cousin John the Baptist had been baptized. And you can see that in chapter 3. He's described there. People went out to be baptized. And John the Baptist, his baptism was one of repentance. It's not the baptism we practice today fully, it was just calling people to be ready to meet the Messiah, to repent and prepare the way of the Lord. So he had a lot of crowds, and into that setting comes the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Jesus steps forward to baptism, John says, you don't need this. And Jesus says, yeah, I don't, but let's do this to fulfill all righteousness. Because he was stepping forward to be our Savior, to step into our life, our shoes, to take our place when he dies on the cross. But it starts here in his baptism, his identification with his people. But do you remember what we heard at that baptism ceremony uh, as Jesus came out of the waters? Two tremendous things telling us something about Jesus. The voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. A voice from heaven putting a caption on who this one from Galilee was. This is the Son of God. And the Holy Spirit somehow tangibly, it was perceived visually even, the Holy Spirit descended as if a dove onto Jesus, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit, which is where our passage begins today. Jesus steps forward into his ministry as the Son of God. And as chapter 3 pointed out, as Luke, the gospel writer and narrator, reminded us of the human lineage, as it were, of Jesus, he was the son of Enoch, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, as well as the son of God. The one that stepped forward, son of God and son of man, the son of Adam. And secondly, we see as he starts his ministry, the text says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. Uh, John the Baptist was down near Jerusalem baptizing the Jordan River running north and south. 
So when it says Jesus returned, he went up towards Galilee, towards his home of Nazareth. It would be a a journey straight north. And we're not told exactly uh, where the wilderness is, but the Spirit says, okay, you're heading home, but let's go here. And it's the Holy Spirit that leads him into the wilderness. And rather than trying to find it on a map, as some commentaries will spend time doing, let me tell you to find it in the Old Testament. The word wilderness is a theological concept as well as a literal topographic feature. If you've read your Bible, when you hear the word wilderness, what comes to mind? Well, first and foremost, Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness, right? They got away from Pharaoh, yay! And they're being led towards the worship of God on Mount Sinai to receive God's law, thank you. But then they're led through the wilderness for 40 years until that generation that had tested God and failed had passed away and a new generation rose up to enter the promised land. When you hear wilderness, you think testing, trial. We don't typically think the Garden of Eden. But when Adam and Eve fell into sin, the garden was changed and they were cast out, as it were, into the wilderness because they failed a test. What we see here with Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, entering into a wilderness experience for 40 days of testing is his taking on the mantle of Israel, where Israel failed to be God's servant in the world. Jesus will succeed. Where Adam failed to keep the commandments of God and to fight the temptation of the serpent, Jesus will succeed as he is led by the Spirit. And it would last for 40 days. 40 days led by the Spirit. Jesus didn't go just in his own mindset, I'm going to run down the devil. The son of man came into the world to defeat the devil, to disarm the devil, right? We were told that in Hebrews and other places. But it's the spirit that leads Jesus here first to face the devil after the period of 40 days of fasting. You see, Jesus is actually replicating that experience so that his substitutionary role on our behalf is fully genuine the full weight of this period of testing not just 10 days not just 20 not just 39 but 40 for 40 days being tempted by the devil we're going to be looking on and off at Deuteronomy chapter 8 you might want to put a a small bookmark in it that's where Jesus quotes from scripture about bread alone But the context of Deuteronomy 8 is in view as well. In Deuteronomy 8, verse 2, we're told that God's people were in that wilderness to be tested. And God gave them manna and said, are you satisfied with what I provide? And they constantly said no. So that's why they were in trouble. Deuteronomy 8, verse 2 says this, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. The period in the wilderness was a test. 
40 years. Jesus enters into a test. For he is the second Adam. He is the new Israel. He is going to secure a new covenant for God's people. He's righteous and altogether holy. And he endures those 40 days. He's fasting for 40 days. That's a spiritual discipline to focus the heart and mind. I've only fasted for a few days at a time. And it was a while ago. Fasting has great spiritual profit. You have to be careful. You can't undertake a fast like this unless you have made fasting a part of your life for a long period of time. And it does stretch the imagination of some how Jesus could have survived. 39, 40 days without food. He certainly would have been near death. And at his weakest, when at the end of those 40 days, I'm sure the devil was poking and prodding during the 40 days, but at the end, when he was at his weakest, come these three acute and focused temptations, outrightly spoken to the Lord Jesus We should note before we move on to those temptations that the Bible teaches that the devil is real. The devil, Satan, is not a metaphor. It's not a a figure of speech. It's not a mythological way to explain evil in the world. The devil is a fallen angel, and he goes by more than one name. We call him the devil. The Bible often calls him Satan, the accuser of God's people. He is in rebellion against God, and uh, he is the leader of, of of evil angels and demons. He's a very real being. That's what the Bible tells us. And he has real power. And he has real malice. He has a hatred for God. A hatred for the Son of God. And he doesn't like us either. That's the Bible's reality. But as uh, Douglas Milne points out, Jesus facing the devil, Milne says, by succeeding against the devil, Jesus laid the foundation of his messianic work that would lead him to the cross where he finally broke the devil's power once and for all. It begins here. He's not just trying to sneak in to the promised land and try to reach some Jews before the devil knows he's there. The Holy Spirit leads him to this face-to-face, as it were, encounter with the evil one. Let's take a look. The temptations that Jesus faced. Three temptations. And these are similar to what we face. For in our humanity, we share similar needs. Physical needs, social needs, spiritual needs. And the devil knows how we're made, and he knows our weaknesses. And here comes the Son of God incarnate, taking on those weaknesses. And Jesus incarnate, relying on the help of the Holy Spirit in his body. The devil thought he had a great opportunity here. So he brings these three temptations, and there's so much that could be said of them. I want to to not exhaust them, but lay them out in this way. The first temptation in verse 3 has to do with Jesus and his physical appetite, his critical need for food. So what do we read in verse 3? The devil said to him, 
If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. We'll take the second part of that first. Jesus was hungry. He was near death. He had fasted so incredibly long at the extent of human endurance, physically. We don't know what strength he had at all. And because he was the Son of God, he could look at that stone, and that does look like a loaf of bread. With a word, he could have had something to eat. That makes sense. We all have to eat, right? How many people are planning to have lunch today? Why doesn't Jesus eat? Well, we're told in the scriptures he was led by the Holy Spirit of God. And his fasting is equally implied that that was what the Lord led him to do. So that in his flesh, God the Son would completely trust God the Father. Completely. This is a test of necessity, but we have to eat. Yes, Jesus was the Son of God. He doesn't have to turn a stone into bread to prove that to the devil. And Jesus doesn't have to allow the necessity that is real. And it's not a sinful necessity to eat. You can have lunch with a clean conscience today. But it was a necessity that the devil said ought to be elevated so that you're not following the Spirit. You're feeding your appetite. Come on, this is necessary, isn't it? Look at you. Fixate on your needs. You need this. You need this now, man. You might not wake up tomorrow. Satan presses Jesus to idolize his physical need. Does that connect with any of us? I confess one of my plaguing attributes is I can get hangry. You've heard of this word, right? Hangry? When, when, when your meal is delayed or you, you're not getting your food, you get a little edgy. We're made that way. Whether two meals a day, one meal a day, we're made, we need fuel every day. That's the way our body works, our blood sugar, our muscles, our mind. It's a legitimate need. We have many legitimate needs. The need to be loved. The need for clothing and shelter. But is it possible that these necessities could become a test when God has made his will clear about something? When we're being led by the Spirit of God, might we be tempted to say, well, another time, Lord, I really have to eat. Another time, Lord, I need this. We're tempted all the time in this way. Jesus knows those necessities. When, when you've got to the end of the day, you get home from work and you and your spouse and the noisy kids and the world is overwhelming and you say, I need a break. I need a minute. We know this temptation. And exhaustion and hunger are not sins. These are legitimate needs. But when God has put something else before you, and asks you to keep your legitimate need in check for the moment. 
you better be led by the Spirit of God. Jesus models that. And I mentioned Deuteronomy 8, that God said, for 40 years in the wilderness, I've been testing you. I've been watching your faith and trying to look at your hearts. Deuteronomy 3, which Jesus will quote from, begins. Let's read the whole verse, Deuteronomy 3. And he humbled you. Moses is speaking to the people of Israel. And he, the Lord, humbled you, and he let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know for your fathers, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We need to see all of verse 3 if we're going to understand this temptation. Jesus knew all of verse 3. Jesus said, Lord, you have brought me here. You have let me hunger to teach me that there's more to life than bread. Have we learned that ourselves? Do we take our necessities and idolize them? Of course I need my three square meals a day. Of course I need my X number of hours of sleep. Of course I need heated seats in my car in New York in the winter. We we, we can get carried away and, and, and draw these circles so large. Jesus faced this temptation knowing that he was led by the Spirit of God. He could trust the Spirit of God. We need that childlike faith. The second test, verses 5 and 6, the devil comes at him again. And the devil says this in Luke chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. The devil took him and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory... For it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. I'll explain why I call this the test of immediacy in just a minute. Certainly here, if the first test had to do with his physical realities, this test has to do with perhaps our social realities. He was being offered glory and power. By the devil. And let's not forget, what did we say at the beginning? The devil is the chief liar. He's the master of the half-truth. The Bible does call the devil the prince of the power of the air. But as we've learned by watching British news in these days, prince is not the top of the food chain. Uh, Mr. Prince of the power of the air, Mr. Devil... Mr. Fallen Angel, Mr. Created Being. There is a king over all the universe, the king of all the earth, the king of eternity. And he has set the boundaries for what you may and may not do, and you don't have anything to give away like what you're promising here. And in fact, what is the truth? This had already been promised to Jesus, had it not? These kingdoms of the world. Psalm 2, somewhere around verse 8. Ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. This is my son with whom I'm pleased. You can have anything you want, Jesus. The father says, I will give you that. You will come into your kingdom. Gather your people. 
Jesus is aware in his high priestly prayer in John 17 that this is his mission, this is his purpose. I have all those you've given to me. Now glorify your son like you promised. Jesus had been promised a kingdom. Jesus knew that when he was made known, every knee would bow and every tongue confess. What the devil is trying to sell him here and now, he can provide And it's what Jesus already will inherit, right? So this I call the test of immediacy. You have a promise, but why not have it now? Don't wait on God. Push to God's timetable a little bit. Come on. Wouldn't it be great to have authority? Wouldn't it be great to, how does he phrase it? uh, uh, The glory of all these kingdoms? You were at John's baptism. Nobody glorified you. Well, except God the Father and the Holy Spirit. The devil's tempting him. You and I, we have an inheritance in heaven. God knows us by name. Mind-boggling. We have property. I'm not just talking about Arizona. We have property in heaven. We have a place of belonging. We'll cast our crowns at the feet of our king. But the devil wants us to set up shop down here. We get this temptation of immediacy ourselves, don't we? I want what I want now, and I want it on my my timetable. I want to be respected. I want to be honored. I want to be loved. I want, I want, I want. And also in the midst of this temptation, the second one in verses 5 and 6, is the issue of worship. Did you see it? You can have it if you then will worship me. Ah, there's the hook. Satan's fishing here. He presents the bait but hides the hook. But it's there. You need to worship me. Jesus, he doesn't have to weigh that at all. He doesn't have to struggle over that because he knows what the scripture says. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Done. He doesn't have to debate. He knows that commandment. That commandment shows Jesus where to take his stand. And that temptation fades away. But notice when the issue of worship comes up in that Second temptation, how profound this is. This, this blew my mind to really grasp this this week in my study. As Dale Ralph Davis says, is not Jesus saying that it matters more to worship the true God than to possess the whole world? Is not that a very interesting view of worship? Suggesting A primacy that worship has above all other activities and all other achievements. The worship of God is the greatest thing you can do. Jesus told the woman at the well, 
The Father has sent me because the Father seeks those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And Jesus heard the devil's offer. He probably knew how phony it was. And said, I would rather worship the one true and living God than have it all. Fellow Americans, we need to hear this. We need to tell our neighbors this. What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? We were made for this. To sing and shout, Jesus saves. That's why we were made. That's why we're here. That's why God gives us any skills and talents and opportunities you have. That stranger may not meet another Christian, but you open your mouth, bear the gospel, give account of the hope that's within you. That more might worship in spirit and in truth. It should break our heart when those whom God created with the capacity to sing, to create, to smile, live for themselves and don't worship God. And I would suggest to you, if you know Romans 1, which talks about sin pretty stiffly, the big sin in Romans 1 is failing to acknowledge God, failing to worship God, failing to give him thanks. It all unravels from there. Jesus does not succumb to this test of immediacy. There's one more test that comes and the devil pulls out all the stops. Let's take a look. Luke chapter four, verses nine and 10 and 11. And the devil took him to Jerusalem. We don't know how this happened physically. We think it was done physically. We don't think this is just a vision. We don't know for sure. The devil took Jesus to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, Throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He, God the Father, will command His angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. The devil is quoting from Psalm 91. We can take a look at that as well. He takes him to Jerusalem. This is the heart. Not just other worldly kingdoms. This is the holy city. The gold on the dome glistening of the temple. And he takes him to the parapets. We think it was the southeast corner of the Temple Mount overlooking the Kidron Valley so there'd be a high exchange, not just temple to ground level, but down into the valley. He says, jump. This is going to be good. Jump and we'll watch the angels swoop in. This is going to be great. And everybody who watches will know you're the Son of God. If you are the Son of God, let's do this. You know the Bible. Here's a verse. Keep the verse. If Jesus had succumbed to that, it would be the sin of presumption. Because here it's a test of certainty. Do you believe you're the son of God or not? Do you believe the scripture or not? How many times do we get similar temptations? You're a Christian, right? Well, then prove it. You believe this verse, well, then. And we have to remember The devil deals in half-truths. This is not a legitimate growing opportunity. He's not seeking to help you testify of your Christianity. He's not seeking to help you grow spiritually. 
So beware. We call this a test of certainty. If you're the son of God, if you believe the word of God, let's make certain. Why not demonstrate that you believe the scripture? Why not force God's hand? Why not put God to the test? Is he good for his word? You see where it's going. Let's make certain. Come on, Jesus, you keep quoting the scripture. Here's a verse for you. How many times do people throw in the face of Christians something that Christians ought to be doing? Usually to escape some moral scrutiny of themselves. Not always. But the devil quotes from Psalm 91. Let's take a look. Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. He leaves out a phrase. I'll try to emphasize it when I get to it. Psalm 91, verse 11. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Why does the devil leave out in all your ways? We're not exactly sure, but I can tell you this. Those angels that are guarding Jesus aren't sitting on the bench, aren't just on standby, on the flight line, watching to see if Jesus jumps. The angels are present with Jesus even at that moment. And God's word and presence of his spirit are guarding him as that question comes. In all your ways, you don't have to create a test. God and his word are true. Always. At all times. The phone rings in the middle of the night. You get some hard news. God's not asleep. He is with you. This is a test of certainty. Jesus will not commit the sin of presumption. Satan is asking him to force God's hand and he will have none of it. We'll get to his response in just a minute. Let's actually step back now and and, and focus on the faith that Jesus is exercising here. You see how I focus primarily on the temptations and unmasking them so that we see the danger they present. Let's look at the responses more carefully and see how Jesus models faith, faith in God, faith in his word. And let me remind you what faith is not. Um, It's always important to define the key terms, right? What faith is not. It, It helps to define something by what it's not. Faith is not taking stupid risks or leaps in the dark. Sorry to the existentialists out there or watching at home, any fans of uh, Hans Kuhn. Faith is not a leap in the dark. As your pastor, as your friend, don't leap into dark places. Stick with the light of God's word. Stick with what God has made known because faith is believing God and his word. Walking in the light of God and his word. Holding fast to your savior and shepherd. That's what faith is. No one should ever leap in the dark. But pastor, I, I don't know what's going to happen when I walk through this door. It's not a leap in the dark if you're holding the hand of the shepherd. If you're walking in the light of God's word. Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil, 
for thou art with me. There's no leap in the dark here. Let's, let's get rid of these stupid ideas about what faith is. Oh, I'm a person of faith. I, it doesn't matter what happens. It's not stoicism. It's not existentialism. And it's not convincing yourself to believe something you know is not true. So you're having trouble swallowing. Jesus couldn't have fasted for 40 days. That I can't believe the Bible. Faith is not forcing yourself to believe something that's not true. It is true. And faith will always seek understanding. Faith and reason are not enemies. In the Bible, faith is fueled by the minds God gave us. The way of wisdom leads to understand. Well, I'm going to get off on a separate sermon. We'll leave it at that. Faith is trusting God in his word. So let's see how Jesus exercises it here. In verse 4, Jesus' first response to the first temptation, Jesus quotes, alludes to, Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. Man shall not live by bread alone. Hey, Satan, I am hungry. Hunger is a necessity. But you know what? There's some things that are more important than food. There's some things that are more important than life. Go back a few hundred years and ask a French Huguenot how much he values his gospel, his Bible in his own language, For gospel Huguenot families perished for what they believed. Christians in Africa today are being killed at a rate that far exceeds even the first century. Simply for being identified with Christ. Faith prefers the will of God. Jesus shows us that. I'm hungry, nothing wrong with eating, but... If it means disobeying God or not following God's spirit, I will say no, not now. I will not deify my perceived needs. My needs ought never to be my idols. God is my God. He will provide. He will lead me. Faith prefers the will of God. Faith prefers to wait for God. And notice, by the way, That all of Jesus' answers come as he wields the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Ephesians 6, 17. The armor of God. Are you armed against the devil's wild? You have the shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit. Shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit. So Jesus not only deals with those fiery darts by his faith in God's Word, he expresses God's Word to combat the temptation. Man shall not live by bread alone. Matthew's gospel tells this same story. It's Matthew 4, 4. Man shall not live by bread alone. And Matthew, God bless him, gives more of the verse. But by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And in Matthew 4, 4, when Matthew quotes that longer version, and he does so in Greek, man shall live, not live by bread alone, but by every thing that comes from the mouth of God. It's not logos. Some of you need to hear this. It's not just Bible verses. We live by everything that God comes from the mouth of God. If you remember in the wilderness, what came from God? Not just the commandments to Moses, but God sent manna. God sent water. God sent the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. Whatever God speaks into your life as his provision... Not just scripture verses, 
Man lives in relationship with a father who cares. Second victory over that second temptation in verses 5, 6, and 7 tells us that faith prefers to worship and serve God alone. Faith is focused on the God of the Bible and serving him alone. Faith is not just an emotional feeling where you feel happy. I feel content. I feel able. No, faith always takes an object. Jesus says, I can't have faith in you, Satan. I have faith in, Christ, in God the Father alone, says Christ. The kingdoms you're promising me, God's word is already given. I believe him. And the third temptation is met. And we see here, faith prefers to trust God rather than to test God. You remember how Satan uh, in verses uh, 10 and 11 was trying to tempt Jesus by quoting the verse. You got to believe this verse, right? Force God's hand. Jesus did believe the verse. It's not whether I believe the verse or not. I just don't think a creature needs to put his creator to the test. I am not the one to test him. He is testing me. Do you remember James 4, verse 7? James 4, verse 7 is what Jesus did that final day. James tells us, Submit yourselves therefore to God, period. Resist the devil, comma, and he will flee from you. Jesus trusted God rather than testing James, James, you know how broken this world is. James, you write about the trials and afflictions and, and the one who's sick needs to pray and, and uh, some claim they have faith, but they have no works. James, you know. James 4, 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. When you submit, you trust. Trust, worship. Live a God-centered life. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And we're so thankful that Jesus won this victory of faith. He gives us a model, but it's also one step further towards the cross. The old church father Ambrose said, Jesus was led into the desert for a purpose in order to challenge the devil. If he had not fought, he would not have conquered him for me. The devil would come back, Garden of Gethsemane, even at the cross, taunting. But Jesus would win the last battle. Let me close by giving you just a couple exhortations here for you to take away. This has been a, a rich and, as I said, profound text for us. Not just about how to beat back temptation and the devil, but how to walk by faith. So my first reminder, my first exhortation is, is Christian, realize trials of faith are to be expected. Trials and temptations will come. That's always a shock for young Christians. They're unclouded. You remember the euphoria. Maybe you were converted as a young adult or maybe an older adult. You know that euphoria. Oh, this is great. And then there's a temptation and perhaps you fall. There's a trial. And you may not pass the test. The same Holy Spirit that led Jesus leads us 
Jesus said, I will never leave you or abandon you. The spirit he gives us is called the comforter. The spirit of truth. As we battle with the lies and messages of this world, the challenges to our faith, we have a a man on the inside to help us. But expect those trials to come. Secondly, and this one brings great joy to my heart to remind you, see the value of the Bible. See the value of the Bible and knowing its contents. Friends, some of you that uh, are, are, are maybe just getting going in the Christian life, it's not enough just to carry the book. It's not enough just to own the Bible or to read your favorite passage. You need to know the whole thing and know its power. Let me quote Bishop John Charles Ryle, these wonderful words. Three times we see Jesus foiling and battling the great enemy who assaulted him. He does not yield a hair's breadth to him. He does not give him a moment's advantage. Three times we see Jesus using the same weapon, the sword, in reply to the temptations. The spirit, which is the word of God. Let us learn from this single fact, says Ryle, if we learn nothing else from this wondrous history, the high authority of the Bible and the immense value of a knowledge of its contents. Let us read it, search into it, pray over it, diligently, perseveringly, unweariedly. Let us strive to be so thoroughly acquainted with its pages that its texts may abide in our memories and stand ready at our right hand in the day of need. Let us be able to uh, appeal against every perversion and false interpretation of its meaning to those thousand plain passages which are written, as it were, with a sunbeam. The Bible is indeed a sword, but we must take heed that we know it well if we would use it to good effect. See the value of the Bible. Practice wielding your sword. Finally, trust Jesus. Trust this Jesus who endured everything the devil has to throw and conquered. Trust Jesus who is able to sympathize with us in our temptations, in our trials, and he still shepherds us. Remember this, as Douglas Milne pointed out, Christians do not need to defeat Satan. We don't need to do that for ourselves, but rather we build on the victory of Christ. We don't have to repeat Luke chapter 4 or Matthew chapter 4 in the temptation sequence because Christ has won the victory. The devil is a defeated foe. We just build on that. Yes, he does roar and prowl. But he's chained and defeated. Trust this, Jesus. Battle proven. The test of need, the test of fame and glory, the test over God's word and his will, Jesus passes everyone. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. What agonies he endured to procure our salvation, to do it properly, to do it clearly and powerfully, to succeed where Adam failed, to succeed where Israel failed, that we might enjoy the fruits of his life, death, and resurrection and the new covenant he has bought by his blood. Father, help us. Help us to believe your word. Help us to live in its light. Bring glory to your name. In and through us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.